You're listening to episode 154 of the Writing Life podcast from the National Centre for Writing, a weekly podcast for anyone who writes. I'm Simon Jones. And I'm Steph McKenna. And it is the 9th of July 2021 here in Norwich. How are you doing today, Steph? I'm not too bad. Thank you, Simon. I'm in uh, sunny Dragon Hall. I'm hanging out here with Peggy. It's just the two of us. We're having a nice, a nice relaxed Friday, getting some work done. How about you? Not too bad. I'm, I'm working from home today, but we did have a bit of a bumper edition in the office yesterday, didn't we? We had a few meetings, didn't we, in person, actual in-person meetings. And we got to socialise a bit in the evening as well, which is long overdue. It's been, yeah, more than 18 months since we did that. I'm feeling bolstered by it, if not a little bit tired. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So what have we got on the show today? So we've got a very special interview today on The Writing Life. This is with Titsi Dangaremba, who, uh, as many will know, is a writer, a filmmaker and an activist from Zimbabwe. And she gained international acclaim with her debut novel, Nervous Conditions, back in 1988, which became the first published English novel by a black woman from Zimbabwe. And her latest novel, This Mournable Body, was the third in a trilogy that began with Nervous Conditions. And that was shortlisted for the 2020 Booker Prize. So this chat took place between Sitsi and Molly Rose Medhurst, who is a UEA student who was working with us for a few months at the beginning of the year. And we had a fantastic time with Molly. She is, she's just a very inspirational, multi-talented person. She's a writer. She works with Girl Up Norwich. She's always busy being involved in the literature scene generally. So we really loved having her at the National Centre for Writing. And one thing she really wanted to do was interview someone on the podcast. So She set her sights high with Sitsi, who was absolutely wonderful and was really pleased to come on and have this chat with Molly. Yeah, all of our interns are always amazing. They really are. Yeah, they tend to be younger people who are kind of at university or just just coming out of university. And it's always inspiring and slightly intimidating (laughs) how kind of passionate and skilled they are. But I don't know, it gives me immense hope and faith in the future if people like Molly are the ones who are going to be coming up and taking charge. Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay, well let's hand over to Molly having a chat with Sitsi Dangaremba. Hi. Hello Molly. Lovely to meet you here. Yeah, it's so lovely to meet you. Yeah, I'm such a yeah, such a big fan of your books. So it's really nice to be able to talk to you. Thank you. So let's dive right in. So I thought we'd talk a bit about the lead of your trilogy because she is such an intriguing and multifaceted character. And I was just wondering what were some of the influences for her character? The influences for the character of Tambudzai was really what I saw happening to young girls in Rhodesia as it was when I was growing up. I could see the way girls who were less fortunate than I was were struggling in life in all sorts of ways. I'd see this, for example, at school. When I was at school in primary school, we had girls as old as 14 or 15 in second grade. And this was because they had been denied education. Now they were in this situation where they didn't fit. They were really on the verge of becoming young women And you could just see all around in the family circle how things were for other people. And when Zimbabwe became independent in 1980, it seemed like that was a moment where this could change. And I wanted to write a book for those young women that would encourage them 
to take advantage of the opportunities that would arise. So basically, it was written for, for the young women. And I hadn't seen young women like that in literature before, except in one book by Kamara Laye, which was called The African Child at the time. That was the only book that I had read that had a young black rural girl protagonist. And so I thought that I would like to do the same for young girls in Zimbabwe. Seeing yourself reflected in literature, I think, is also such an important thing to to address as well. I think personally something which struck me was reading Nervous Conditions all the way to reading This Mournable Body was Tambu's determination to pave her own way. And you can see that all throughout the trilogy. And at times I find myself in contention with that because she's very, you know, her ambitious nature, her investment in this system of meritocracy. And I think at the same time as she pursues this kind of success, she really struggles with that as well. While you were writing it, did you have a set path you wanted Tambu to go down or did she kind of pave her own way in the same way in which she does in the in the novel? Molly, I, I wanted Tambudzai to be representative. I wanted Tambudzai to be a character that readers from my part of the world could identify with. And when you look at my part of the world, life is so difficult that people do tend to become that very ambitious, sometimes rather callous person. You remember Tambudzai actually referred to that in nervous conditions right at the beginning, saying that some people may think that I am callous. And it really is has a lot to do with the fact that life is just so difficult. People think that to get ahead, to survive, to stay alive at all, you have to focus on yourself and nothing else. And so that was what I wanted to narrate in the whole trilogy and especially in this mournable body. And I wanted to narrate it in a way that raises the very questions that you ask about meritocracy. Does it really work if getting ahead is turning people into this kind of person? Is that the right model that we should have for our societies? And um, yes, so Tambudzai really does embody that kind of process that I think we have all over the world, but that maybe is more accentuated in societies that have um, a lot less resources available to people than other parts of the world. And I think it definitely does raise those kind of questions around those systems. I think it definitely resonates as well with nervous conditions and with what's happening in Zimbabwe post-independence and obviously pre-independence as well. And I was thinking in terms of feminism, because I consider myself an intersectional feminism, and I had two questions. What place do you think Tambudzai holds in terms of feminist spheres and feminist rhetoric as well? And also how your piece as you were saying about, you know, how it reflects on what's been happening in Zimbabwe. I was wondering how you think it resonates with current events such as the protests around gender-based violence, racial systems of oppression and police brutality. I think Tambudzai is not a feminist at all. And definitely when I wrote her, I didn't have any intention or even any awareness of any feminist fiber in her body. <laughs> uh, she really is out for Tambudzai being a good woman and getting ahead 
and showing people that she can achieve something in this world. Ambition really is her motivating drive. The feminist element in the books comes from Nyasha, her cousin. And uh, that was done rather consciously because when I was writing Nervous Conditions in the 1980s, there were not that many feminists in Zimbabwe. Actually, feminism was still a dirty word, really. It, it was used uh, as a pejorative. And so I had to balance it out. I had to introduce the themes of feminism and why they're positive and why that could be an area that could bring us forward. But at the same time, I wanted to have a recognizable character who had the kind of consciousness that, consciousness that the ordinary girl would have then. And when one looks back into Tambutai's family life, coming from an impoverished rural family, one can see that there really isn't any scope for feminism in that environment. She wouldn't even have heard of it. So Tambutai never did become a feminist. I would say her aunt Lucia is more of a practical feminist, if not a theoretical one, because she believes women can get up and do what they need to do. Where the book ends, where the trilogy ends with Tabutai now beginning a new trajectory in her life, I think it opens up room for Tabutai to consider these issues of gender and gender oppression more deeply, but I don't see her ever becoming a feminist. And I think that is one of the tragedies of Zimbabwe, that we have a lot of women who become patriarchal in their behavior because the structures are patriarchal. And if you want to get ahead, if you want to make a life for yourself, then you have to fit into those structures. So I can't really blame the women. It simply is the way that society is set up. Uh, we do have a lot of gender-based violence at the moment, which has increased during the COVID-19 pandemic and the lockdown measures that have been taken. Um, that's the same as around the world. I do think that the increased economic crisis in Zimbabwe has also led to increased gender-based violence and other ways in which women and girls are oppressed. For example, uh, education, girls are now less likely to go to school, uh, young girls, really preteens, even engaging in transactional sex. There was a story from one of the cities where four girls did precisely that and became pregnant. Two of them became pregnant and then committed suicide. So this is how the gender oppression is panning out as a result of the economic crisis induced by the ZANU-PF government and then um, made worse by the global pandemic. It's harrowing to see those kind of things happening around you, seeing them in the news and also having them be an immediate, an immediate reality. And the thing is, um, I mentioned these young women from this city who became pregnant through transactional sex and two committed suicide. The point is there was no alternative that they could conceive of, no counselling services. Mm. They can't rely on their families. Their families might even have beaten them up. You know how it is, I can't say. But definitely in these times, very few families would welcome an extra mouth to feed. 
And then in a condition where it's a child having this baby who can't help to feed it. So it's just stress and trauma all around. And really, while there's no um, legal abortion in Zimbabwe, or the legal abortion is so difficult to get that it's as good as not existing. There are stories of young women, girls, being granted abortion by the courts, but having to go through the process, even just getting the last permissions to go to the hospital, by that time, the pregnancy is too far advanced and it's a health risk to have the abortion. So one can really see what kind of situation these young girls are in. And you are right, it is harrowing and it is heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah, it really is being trapped within the patriarchal systems and not having external support to be able to break free from the mindset almost. And I thought particularly haunting image within your book was of the hyena. And I was wondering if you could talk about what that represents. The hyena is something that I had experience with hearing the hyenas laughing in the hills and really my blood running cold. It was the most chilling sound I'd ever heard. Like in the middle of the night, there'd be this blood curdling laughing sound. So when I was looking for a motif to really indicate the abyss that Tambuzai had fallen into and how completely broken she is, that was the sound that came to my mind. And it, it really was a sound that denoted complete breakdown, uh, destruction. You know how hyenas um, feed on carrion. So implying that Tambuzai has come to the point where she is almost carrion and there are these carnivores waiting to feed on her carcass. So that was the kind of imagery around Tambuzai hearing the hyena's laugh that I wanted to evoke. By contrast, it's, it's interesting as you were talking about Nyasha being kind of an example of uh, feminists and seeing their interactions with each other. And I don't think Tambutsai fully understands Nyasha and I think probably vice versa. Um, there's one point where Tambu can't really understand why Nyasha has chosen a husband who isn't extremely wealthy. And Tambudzai says um, she wants one or the other, a powerful radiance or obvious failure, not this liminal complexity. And I wondered how you went about creating Nyasha's character. Nyasha's character really reflected some of the experiences that I had. I went to England with my family when I was two. I can't even remember the trip. So my earliest memories were of England. And we went back to Zimbabwe when I was six. And I was extremely perplexed. I had the same kind of language issues that Nyasha had. And just seeing this new culture unfold and... Um, it was difficult. Readjusting was difficult because they say that a, a child is more or less formed by seven. The formative years are the first seven. So I was six. And I kind of think that maybe a year or two would have helped me personally because maybe my critical faculties would have been a bit more developed. 
But I also think that one of the problems that I had was being fostered, which wasn't the case with the character Nyasha. But because I was fostered, my earliest memories are also not of my biological parents. My earliest memories are of my foster parents. And so that really gave me a, a good distance or a good overview, a good panorama on the kinds of problems that a character like Nyasha could face. So I was really able to feed in and build up that character. Now, I could see that times were moving and I could see that many more young women in my part of the world would end up experiencing those same kinds of problems that I put into that character. And uh, I, I wanted to prepare them to say, look, these kinds of uh, cultural clashes are something that are going to be part of your progress and you will have to go through them. So that was the story behind Nyasha. Um, it was unfortunate for me when I was writing it, I felt very bad that I felt compelled by the drama of the story to make Nyasha's situation so desperate. But this was to highlight the very patriarchy that we were talking about and how a young girl who has nothing but herself and her vision of life clashes against that. I would hope that today things have changed. In fact, I know that things have changed in Zimbabwe and the clashes are not always so extreme. I was at a boys' school once talking about nervous conditions and in the Q&A, one of the young men put his hand up and said, why did Nyasha's brother treat her so badly? You know, and that was a couple of years ago and it was the first time I had heard that kind of angle on it. So I really think and I see that there are changes, but for me, it was important to highlight that problem so that people could be aware of it. Yeah. The relationship between Leon and Nyasha was really interesting and seeing how they interact and it can be quite for intense at times. And I was wondering if you could um, expand a little bit more on Leon's character as well. I'll talk about Leon's character through an anecdote. About two decades ago, probably a bit more now, I was in Switzerland with some other Zimbabwean writers. And we ended up in a debate about our Swiss hosts. And one of the writers was adamant that our hosts were extremely wealthy because all white people had money. That's how people put it. Do they have money? And uh, I was trying to say, well, actually, that's not true. People are people the world over, and there are classes, and most of us are just trying to get through the day. And um, they, this person just wouldn't believe that. And so that was when I came face-to-face -face with the idea or with the knowledge that many people from the continent at that time seemed to think that any white person had money. That might have had to do with the development aid industry where development aid workers come and earn so much money um, compared to what their compatriots are earning and they have these 
wonderful contracts that give them reduced cost housing in very good areas, etc. So it might look to people as though all white people have money. And this is for people who maybe hadn't lived outside the country. And so it was important for me to begin to paint a, a picture of white people that was a bit more realistic um, to say that we are all people together and many of us are just struggling. And in terms of love, uh, the money a person has should not be the main factor in the equation. So that was the idea that the relationship with Leon was built around. Of course, I'd spent time in the West, I'd spent time in England and in Germany, and so I knew what I was talking about. I was thinking a little bit about the structure of the book, and it's divided into different parts, which all kind of have to do with movement. And I was wondering if you saw your writing as well as something that is in motion? I find it really difficult to characterize my writing. I find that every project comes to me and then I have to find a way of narrating that impulse. And so with This Mournable Body, I had the two other novels that had to be integrated into the last in the trilogy. I was very clear that I wanted to write a trilogy that could be read as one person's story. That was extremely difficult because of the kind of crisis that Tambudzai found herself in. It was such a profound existential crisis with almost no hope on the horizon because she was living, uh, she lived in an environment that really did not offer her any hope. It's just amazing the number of young women in this part of the world who have come to me and said, I cried when I read your story because that is my story. I moved out. I've moved back with my parents. There is nothing for us on the horizon. And these are women in their 30s. And so the environment really does not offer hope for women of Tambudzai's kind. And yet for the story to be the kind of story that people could read and be captivated by, there had to be some notion that there must be hope somewhere. Otherwise, it would have been too bleak for people to read. So bringing all that together really demanded quite a lot of me. And I think that is why it became rather episodic in that way, that I dealt with this phase in her life and that phase in her life and the last phase in her life. And um, that prevented me, I think, from having to put forward the proposition that it's never going to be get better. If I say, well, this moment looks like this and that moment looks like that and the next one one can then envisage another moment which hopefully might be different. And also another reason why it was important for me to structure the book in that way is that those moments were very definitive in terms of Tambutai's culture, uh, or at least in terms of her own internal world and her personality. Because part of Tambutai's problem was 
the way she saw the world and the way she thought she ought to be in the world. So by focusing on those moments in her life that were so transformational for her, I could indicate that a new Tambuzai was emerging. So in the first part of the book, we see that this moment is one that destroys her further. Then the next moment is that time when she is destroyed and she's at her worst and she has to rely on her relatives to bring her forward. And then the last part is where she's pulled herself back together again with the help of her relatives so far that she can begin to look out and even begin to evaluate her own behavior. So that's why that structure came to me in that way. I know you had trouble publishing this vulnerable body. And do you think this is like a, a common experience for women in Zimbabwe today? Or do you think it's, things have changed? Generally, I think that the publishing opportunities for African women, whether they're on the continent or off the continent, have improved. Obviously, the opportunities would be greater off the continent because there's simply more of a publishing industry. Uh, We don't have any publishers of fiction in Zimbabwe at the moment, and most people who write fiction have to self-publish or, like me, find publishers outside the country. So that is one of the foundational problems in Zimbabwe that the industry simply doesn't exist. Other countries are better off, for example, Kenya, South Africa. So um, it's not really a continent-wide problem. Having said that, though, even with these improvements, I don't think that the industry has opened up sufficiently to embrace very diverse stories. We see that the stories that are being published outside have a kind of similar perspective on the world. Um, I don't see that we're having fresh new perspectives uh, breaking through. And I feel that that's a lack. And I do think that writers have understood this. So in order to be published, a lot of people are writing to try to conform to those areas where they know that they would get published if they wrote in certain ways. And I think we need a new movement that really opens up the field and allows new ways of engaging with language and narrative and character and context to come through. I'm sure it will happen. I think we're just in a phase. So this is not to knock all the efforts that have resulted in the kinds of publications that we see today. It's part of the phase. But I think it's good to just mention that we can also look beyond that to even greater diversity. Definitely. And I think books like yours are a massive source of inspiration and a massive part of creating that change and having that shift and are a part of an ongoing movement and what I'm sure will continue for years and years to come. But I think, you know, seeing pieces of literature like this will do so much. What is the 
message you would like to give to young black Zimbabwean women writers? I don't like to be prescriptive about what people should take away from my work. (laughs) I find that I've presented it and I think personally that my work functions best when people take away what works for them. So I think that would be my answer. I would like young Zimbabwean women to find things in the book, ways of being, uh, ways of going forward, ways of looking at the world that work for them and enrich their lives. That really is the important thing for me. Yeah, that's great. And I think when you're, you know, reading and encountering these texts, I know for me personally, I had a connection with them, even though it isn't my identity or my story exactly. It's it's still something which really resonate with me. And I think everybody can find their own personal connection to to these books. And I just wanted to think about what you are writing and reading right now. And I know that you're leaning into dystopian and speculative fiction. And I was just wondering why you think you've turned to these types of writing. And also interested to know how you think writing in a pandemic has changed your writing as well. Yes, um, I am writing a young adult dystopian speculative piece at the moment. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I turned to that was that I wanted to write something that could speak to the society that we have in Zimbabwe and its dysfunction and the repression in a way that was interesting to young people. I feel a lot of young people are consuming narratives that don't really speak to their context, that is young Zimbabwean people. And they're consuming um, a lot of content, visual content as well. And the kinds of narratives that really do not translate onto the life that we live in Zimbabwe. So I wanted to find a genre that would enable me to write about the lives that young people live in, in a way that really would speak to them, in spite of it being really rather dour and difficult. And I found that speculative uh, speculative fiction enabled me to do that. So that's why I'm doing what I'm doing at the moment. The actual book I'm working on is currently called Sai Sai and the Great Ancestor of Fire, And the cosmology is African cosmology in the sense that the ancestors are part of everyday life and they help and they expect you to do things to keep the world in balance, etc. So it's about three young girls who are tasked to do certain things to keep the world in balance in a situation of repression. I hope the young people that I would like to communicate with here will enjoy it. But I also hope that it will be the kind of uh, YA fiction that adults would enjoy also. Yeah, I'm sure it would be. That sounds really amazing. (laughs) I'm sure I'd, I'd love to read it. Just as a kind of final question, what are you reading at the moment? I am currently a fellow at the Stellenbosch Institute for Advanced Studies. And I came here with a huge project that was very loosely called the Shona subject. You know, the Shona people are said to be people from my part of Zimbabwe. 
And so I have been reading a huge amount of nonfiction. <laughs> I came in January and I really had to read nonfiction the whole way through. What is very positive about that is that it's deepening my knowledge about the cosmology. I mentioned Sai Sai and the Great Ancestor of Fire, which includes the cosmology with the ancestors engaging with life today. And uh, so that has really deepened my knowledge and understanding of those kinds of cosmologies. So I think I will continue with some uh, uh, nonfiction and that I'm reading as a fellow here, the academic stuff. But at the same time, the book I have waiting for me to pick up is, is a homecoming. So I'm looking forward to reading that in the next few days in between the academic articles. I just want to say thank you so much for talking to me. This has been, it's been so great to talk to you. And I absolutely love your books and it's been so nice to, to speak with you. Thank you so much, Molly. Thank you for the invitation. It's been a great conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you very much to Molly and a very special thank you to Sitsi for joining us on the podcast. It was an honour to have you both. If you have any questions or you want to get in touch with us, you can find National Centre for Writing on Twitter and Instagram at Writers Centre. We're on Facebook and you can find out details about all of our events, workshops and digital programmes and resources over on the National Centre for Writing website. We also have a lovely Discord community which is free to join and you'll find writers from all over the world sharing their work having a chat about technique and sharing tips to join up all you need to do is follow the link down in the show notes as a uk registered charity we rely on the generosity of our supporters to make our work possible please do consider making a donation today by heading over to the national center of writing website and hitting the support us button in the top right hand corner please do rate review and subscribe or follow the podcast because it does help other people to find it Thanks again for listening. Keep writing and we will catch you on the next episode. Mm-hmm.